are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Our scripture reading today is from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Hear this now, the word of the Lord. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it then that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They're filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Wayfinding. You may have noticed that today's video is a little bit different, and that's because we are now in our second big chunk of the book of Acts as we're going through this theological history that Luke wrote about the beginning of the, the Jesus movement, what we call Christianity, the church. Uh, we spent our first month just in chapter one seeing Jesus you know, tell the disciples, the, the 12 apostles, well, it was 11, then they added 12. We talked about that last week. And Jesus telling them, wait in Jerusalem until you, are, until you receive power from the Holy Spirit baptizing you. And then there, you know, in chapter one, we're watching them wait. Well, now we're into the kind of transition period of moving into the second big chunk of the book of Acts where the church begins to gather together. And we're going to pick up, of course, where we left off last week with the the disciples, the 12 now apostles waiting for Jesus's promise of the Holy Spirit. So let's jump in. Acts chapter 2, it's uh, on page, we're up to page 10 in the scripture journal. If you've got one of these and you're using it to follow along, we're on page 10. Uh, Now I'm guessing if you grew up in a church context or you've been attending a church like Faith for any, really any amount of time, but if you've been around for a couple of years, you've probably figured out by now that there's basically two things that Christians are supposed to do. Two things, at the risk of oversimplifying it a little bit, Christians are supposed to not sin, that's number one, and tell other people about Jesus. Number two, is that too simple? Yes, it's it's, it's definitely too simple, but to to not sin and to tell people about Jesus, this is kind of how I grew up um, thinking about Christianity. It was like, be good and tell other people how to follow Jesus so that they can be good too. And it's interesting that even with just those those two things I found, man, that, it's incredibly hard. It's incredibly difficult sometimes, both to not sin and to tell people, to tell other people about Jesus. A, a friend of mine who uh, is a missionary uh, was telling me recently about a time that he had just finished 
teaching a, a kind of a week-long intensive, like here's how to help people, you know, here's how to, he was trying to help people learn how to talk to other people about Jesus, you know. So you've got friends, you've got people you care about, people you love, you wanna introduce the people you love to the God that you love, it feels weird and awkward, well, let's do some training on how to do that. So he goes through this training, it's a week, it's intense, at the end of the week training, he's just ready to relax, but of course, life still happens and you still have to stop and get groceries and things like that. So he finds himself at a grocery store, head still spinning from all of this training in that week. And, and he was telling me as he was walking down the aisles, it, you know, his mind at first is racing and then it's spinning and then it's like spiraling because someone's walking towards him and he's thinking, oh man, someone's coming, coming towards me. What if they don't know Jesus? I need to start a conversation. I've got to figure out how to start a conversation with this person. Do I stop them? Do I just say hi? Do I just be like, you're going to hell or something like, what do you do in a grocery store when you want to get to a spiritual conversation fast? And of course, by the time, you know, he got through all that in his head, that person had walked on by. It's like, okay, sigh of relief. Here comes another person. Now, what do I do? Like, how do you start it? And what are you going to tell the teller when you get to the front? Like, hey, I know I'm only here so you can check out these, these few things, but, um, if you were to die today, how do you do this? It actually, it was so overwhelming for him that he just left, left the groceries and everything. He was like, I just have to get out of here. And that may sound extreme, but I get it. There are times, you know, like as a minister of Jesus Christ, there are times where like I'm in a huge group of people just going, what should I do? There are so many people here that God loves and who don't know him, and I am not sufficient to tell everyone. And I've discovered in those moments, there's basically three things you can do. You can just ignore it and be like, oh, whatever. You know what? God's sovereign. He'll save them whether I'm part of it or not. And just ignore it. The second thing you can do is just totally be overwhelmed by it and just can't do anything. Or the third thing you can do is just work and work and work and do as much as you can and then eventually burn out. So um, despair, uh, denial, or burnout. Which door do you want? Well, thankfully, I think there's a better way. And I think Acts chapter 2 actually shows us a better way when it comes to thinking about, okay, how do I do what God has called me to do? I think this passage and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost shows us a better way. Because ultimately, this passage isn't just about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And it's not just about the beginning of the church. This passage is about God marking out sacred space. It's about God building his own temple in which to live. This passage is about the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise of heaven and earth coming back together, heaven and earth being ripped apart at the fall. And the promise of all of scripture is that one day God will dwell with his people and heaven will come back to earth. We begin to see the fulfillment of that promise in Acts chapter two, as heaven and earth meet again in each one of these Jesus followers and in the Jesus followers as a whole. In fact, if there's one thing I want you to get out of this morning's discussion of Acts chapter two, just one thing to write down, it's this. It's that you and me and us, you are where heaven and earth come together. You 
are where heaven and earth come together, which is great news for stressed and overwhelmed Jesus followers. Now, how exactly that's great news, we're going to dig into it, tackle the passage, and find out. And as we go through this passage, these 13 verses or so, we're going to take it in three big chunks, which I've helpfully alliterated for your note-taking pleasure. We're going to look at the presence of God, the presence of God in the believers in this passage. We're going to look at the power of God, what God empowers them to do through his presence, and the purpose of God. Why does God empower these people with his presence? We're going to look at the presence, the power, and the purpose, because the presence of God in us is the power to fulfill his purpose through us. So let's jump in. Are you ready? Acts chapter 2, you're all there? You're all there? There we go. All right, we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, we're talking about the presence of God. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, Luke starts the story by giving us some situational details. It's Pentecost. Pentecost is that late spring, early summer harvest festival in which people get together to give thanks to God for his blessings in the harvest. It's called Pentecost. That's a Greek word meaning 50th. It takes place on the 50th day after Passover. So it's the feast of the 50th, the 50th day. And Pentecost was one of the three main feasts when pilgrims, Jews and proselytes from all over the world, would come to Jerusalem to celebrate Now, not every person came to Jerusalem for every feast. It was more of making a a once-in-a-lifetime pilgrimage to Jerusalem for one of the festivals. There were all sorts of local options in the various centers where Jews had settled throughout the world where you could celebrate Passover or Pentecost or the Feast of Booths uh, or Tabernacles. That's the fall festival. But it's like everybody's dream to be in Jerusalem once for one of these festivals. And depending on who you read, some scholars estimate as as much as, or as many as a million people would flood into Jerusalem during this festival. So the population of Jerusalem would just boom, and it's it's packed. Now we know, since he tells us it's Pentecost, we know that's 50 days after Easter, so about 10 days after Jesus ascended into heaven. It's where we pick it up in chapter 2, verse 1. A few days after Peter and the other apostles uh, were like, hey, we need the 12th one of us because, you know, Judas apostatized. we got to replace him, and Matthias uh, was appointed as the 12th apostle. And what we know is happening so far is, well, all 120 of these early followers of Jesus, they're ready, they're waiting for Jesus to fulfill his promise to baptize them with the Holy Spirit, to empower them with the Spirit. But they don't know how that's going to happen. Jesus told them, hey, it'll be not many days from now before it happens. But that's not the same thing as knowing the time and the place. Earlier this week, I was going down Keystone, and I passed a, a church on the east side of Keystone Ave that had a, you know, the church sign out front said, come Holy Spirit, bless us with thy presence, Sunday, 10 a.m., It's like, well, they don't have that quite that level of specificity of exactly when it's going to happen. Verse 2 tells us, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound. This is Luke's narration of what happens next. Just as they're together, as they're praying, as they're spending time together, whatever they're doing, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a, a mighty rushing wind. 
Not that there actually was a wind, but a sound like a wind that filled the entire house. I suppose if this happened today, we would describe it like a tornado, like it sounded like an oncoming train. It's just this overwhelming sound coming from heaven. It fills the entire house where they're sitting. And then verse three, and divided tongues as of fire. So it's like, I don't know what these things are, but they kind of remind me of fire. They kind of remind us of fire. I mean, it's not fire, but it sort of looks like fire. And the way it's, it looks like fire, it appears to all of them and then rests on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, before we go into the details of what this might have looked like, what exactly happened, what the results were, we should immediately pick up on the biblical resonances of words like fire, wind, from heaven. Because these kind of images, these kind of words show up throughout Scripture over and over again, wind and fire from heaven show up at times and at places where God interacts with the world, where Uh, Something is opened up between heaven and earth, where heaven and earth come back together. God shows up in the garden in Genesis 3 in a rushing wind to confront Adam and Eve after their rebellion. Moses meets God in a burning bush, right? There's the bush that's on fire, but not burning up. What kind of fire is this? And the voice of God tells him, hey, this is sacred ground. You're in the presence of God. Take off your sandals, The people of Israel, you remember, are led out of Egypt. They're led by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire that goes in front of them, and then every night it it, it kind of rests on the tabernacle, which is God's dwelling place, the the place where God lives with his people, where heaven and earth come together in that tabernacle, that sort of pre-temple. And then when King Solomon prays over the finished temple, Fire and wind descend on it so intensely that it burns up all the sacrifices and drives the priests away from the temple. They can't go in and can't do what they're supposed to do. The glory, the fire, the wind of God comes down on the temple. In other words, whatever it actually looked like in this room they're in in Acts 2, you know, with a sound like a wind and something like fire over each person, the point of these verses is that this is is temple language. This is presence of God language. This is language that should evoke from us the memory of tabernacles and temples past, that when God promises to live with his people, his dwelling place is associated with wind and with fire. This is what it looks like when God shows up to live with his people, fire and wind. Now, where, where is this temple located? Where does God live? It's in verse four. And they all, the 120 or so folks that are early followers of Jesus waiting for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they all were filled with the Holy Spirit. See, the new temple that God is building, the sacred space that he is marking off in which he can dwell, isn't a a physical building anymore. 
at this time. It's not made of bricks and mortar or of wood and stone. He's building a temple made of people. God is dwelling on earth again, but this time not in a building, not in a tabernacle, not in a temple, but in his, his people. Heaven meets earth in God's church, in them, and in us. That's the presence of God in these verses. But the presence of God in the Holy Spirit comes with power or enablement for a purpose. Let's look at the power. If you've been with us during this study since the beginning, you'll remember the Holy Spirit has been mentioned quite a few times already. But most significantly in chapter 1 in verse 8, verse 8 is the summary verse, uh, like the thesis statement of the entire book of Acts, where Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I can imagine that in the, the 10 days between when Jesus said that and the events that we're looking at today, those 11 or 12 apostles and, and the people with them probably spent a lot of time in discussion. Like, what exactly do you think Jesus means by or meant by power? And, and if it were me, I can imagine sitting there going, like, I'm a farm kid from Galilee and I'm supposed to go to the end of the earth with this thing? Like, how is that going to work? And who can I send? Because I'm a lot more comfortable here. But anyway, while they're together, and maybe they're having these conversations, and maybe not, but at the very least, I think they knew, and, and we know from reading that verse, that they're not going to be successful in this mission of proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus to the ends of the earth without the power of the Holy Spirit. But even knowing that, I'm betting they didn't anticipate exactly how that power would show up and what it would enable them to do. Look at chapter 2, verse 4 again. Right? They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, in the Greek language, in general, the same word is used for you know, languages, speaking out about discrete languages that different groups of people speak, like uh, French or, or Arabic or Farsi or German or Spanish or whatever. Same word is used to describe those languages as is used for, for this thing in the mouth, for your tongue. I mean, we use it the same way in English every once in a while when we ask somebody, like, what's your mother tongue? Uh, meaning, what language did you grow up speaking? So tongue is a word that means both the organ of speech, to give the dictionary definition, and the language itself. So uh, when it talks about the divided tongues of fire, or as of fire in verse 3, that's like fire in the shape of a tongue, and now they're filled with the Holy Spirit and using their tongues to speak in other tongues, to speak in other languages. And it's important for us to get these other languages they're speaking are actual other languages. Uh, sometimes there's discussion about what's sometimes called a um, ecstatic utterance, which is uh, sort of like a um, non-intelligible um, noises that, that don't necessarily follow an intelligible language pattern, but that can be divinely interpreted. That's not what's happening here. We know from a few verses down that it's like everybody's saying, oh, that, that guy is speaking like my language, my hometown language, and I'm from the other side of the earth. So... 
How did he learn that? The point is, they're speaking in other tongues, intelligible speech, other known languages. And this is key for us to get. The point of getting these known languages wasn't just like, check out this cool new trick, guys. Like, I got this new ability I never had before. It was for a specific point. See, the first proof, the first manifestation of the Holy Spirit's presence in Jesus' followers is that they're given the ability to speak intelligently and intelligibly in specific other languages, specifically so that they can speak about what God has done in the Messiah. They're not given this, uh, this other language in order to be like, whoa, I just got a cool gift. They're given the ability to speak in these other languages so that, as it says in verse 11, so that all of these Jews from around the world can say, well, we hear them all telling in our own tongues, our own languages, the mighty works of God. It's a gift, a skill given for a specific purpose. In other words, when the Holy Spirit fills them, they aren't given some like generic you know, power, like when, when your cell phone is up to 100%, and you're like, great, full battery, now I can do whatever I want with it. It's more like they're given a specific you know, translation app or something, given a very specific empowerment. This is less like, you know, I'm, I'm all charged up and more like, I know Kung Fu, <laughs> right? A special skill. Thank you, by the way. First hour, didn't get that one at all. <laughs> See, it, this is key. It is a specific ministry. It, it's a skill for a specific ministry purpose that's tied to their calling to be witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus the Messiah, witnesses to Jews around the world. To Gentiles too, uh, but at this point in the narrative, they're not quite, they don't quite get that yet. We get to watch that unfold in the chapters to come. But if they are going to fulfill the purpose, the calling they've been given, the apostolic ministry, to be witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus to the ends of the earth, to do that, they're going to need languages. They're gonna need these languages. It's a specific empowerment for a specific purpose. See, the presence of God in them is empowering them for a specific purpose. Let's look at that purpose, picking up in verse five. Luke kind of zooms out the narrative to include those that are outside of this room, outside of this group. It says now in verse five, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. That's a key phrase. And, and these Jews, some of them are living in Jerusalem full time. Some are just here for the Pentecost feast. But these Jews are, are drawn to wherever it is that this group is, is gathered. Wherever they are, there's this sound like a violent wind, like an oncoming train. You know, there's the tongues like fire, and then there's the sound of multiple languages all being spoken. And it all starts to draw a crowd. Um, when my wife and I were first married, we spent a month in China teaching English. And one of the things I realized after being there a couple of weeks, and you know, the only place I would hear English is on that campus where we were teaching, then when you're, you could be out in a crowd and it's all background noise and then suddenly you hear a snippet of English and you're like, wait, what? I know that language. There's another person here that knows that language. And that's what's going on here. 
We've, we've got these guys, the 12 apostles, the 120 or so, that are speaking other known languages from around the world, and Jews from halfway around the globe are suddenly hearing, whoa, this guy is speaking in the language that we only speak in the town that I grew up in. Like, what's going on with that? It throws people off enough that in verse 6, Luke tells us the crowd was uh, bewildered. Actually, five times he says they're bewildered, amazed, astonished, or perplexed at what they're seeing. And they're bewildered because each one is hearing their own hometown language in Jerusalem coming out of the mouths of Galileans. Which one commentator says, Galilean is like the opposite of cosmopolitan. (laughs) You don't expect somebody from Galilee, a rural farming community, is not known for churning out linguistic scholars, churning out folks who happen to know this esoteric language from across the globe. These guys aren't merchants. They're not traders. There would be no reason for them to know the languages over there. And suddenly, they do. Now, we have to remember, at this point in the narrative, as we're reading about these Jews, devout men and women from every nation coming together, at this point in the story, we're only talking about Jews. Remember, Jewish people were spread across the known world, big population centers in different places, lots of them coming back for the feasts, making their pilgrimages. But the people that are coming, even though their native language is something other than Hebrew or Aramaic, they still think of themselves fundamentally as Jewish. This is a multicultural group people who grew up in, in you know, Greek culture, or Roman culture, or Syrian culture, or Arabic culture. These are, this is a multicultural group, but it's mono-ethnic. They all consider themselves to be ethnically Jewish, even though culturally they're from around the world. And there are some who aren't ethnically Jewish that are in the crowd. These are the proselytes, but they're ones who have fully converted. They've taken on the responsibility of observing Torah, keeping the Jewish law, and they are are Jewish in all but ancestry. And so they're gathered together here by this sound, and what, what amazes them is that it's these Galileans speaking their own language. They, it's as amazing as when you see a white guy from the Midwest order sushi in perfect Japanese. Right? You're like, that never happens. You don't expect that kind of person to know this language, and, and that's what they're witnessing here. Now, before we go further into the story, pause for a moment. Think about what's going through the apostles' minds, Peter especially. At this festival, at this feast, Jews from all over the world, every nation under heaven, have come together in Jerusalem. That means people from Jerusalem, from Judea, from Samaria, from the ends of the earth, even Rome is mentioned in the list, are all here in Jerusalem. And these apostles have been given the mandate like to go witness to the resurrection of the Messiah, tell people what God has done in history through Jesus, his Messiah, and take it to the ends of the earth. And I'll send the Spirit. The Spirit will give you power. Spirit comes there's power, and immediately the ends of the earth are at their door, wanting to hear. What is this amazing thing they're, t- they're saying about the mighty works of God? It's like the, the promise of chapter one is immediately fulfilled in chapter two. 
you will be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now, there's still the geographical component of it where they all have to go out, but it starts with everybody coming in. And one of the fun things is, you know, Luke doesn't tell us what happens to some of these Jews who come to Jesus in the next chapter and then spread back out. We just find out about churches in different places made up of Jewish believers in the Messiah, in Jesus. But these apostles are being, they were told by Jesus, witness to my resurrection, take it to the ends of the earth, and the ends of the earth are right here. So what do they do? They begin preaching, proclaiming. And next week, we'll dig into Peter's uh, sermon. That's kind of the first big sermon recorded in Acts. And we'll, we'll, we'll take a look into that in detail. But for now, what we get is at least this sense that the 120, or the, the 12 at minimum, are, are proclaiming. They're talking. They're, they're gathering little groups of people together. They're speaking in these languages from wherever and gathering in groups and saying, listen to what God has done. Listen to what God has done. The Messiah has come, and the kingdom of God is here. And the people hearing it respond with a really good question. Verse, uh, verse 12, what does this mean? What can this mean? And we'll have to wait till next week to hear Peter answer that question, but it, it's a good question nonetheless. What does this mean? And what does it mean for us? Because I think what Acts chapter 2 teaches us is that when the presence of God shows up, when the Holy Spirit shows up, lives in and fills up each one of these followers of Jesus and the Jesus followers as a whole, when the presence of God shows up, it, com it comes with power for a specific purpose, that these believers are empowered to then live out the purpose, the calling that God has for them. In this case, very specifically, in languages they need to reach Jews from around the world that are right there in Jerusalem. Now, if you remember back to the beginning of the sermon, I said there's one thing I want you to write down and learn, and it was that you and me and all of us, but you are where heaven and earth come together. You and me and us are where heaven and earth begin to come back together because the Holy Spirit, God is now living in, dwelling in his people and each one of us. And the rest of Acts and the New Testament as a whole tells us and shows us that when someone comes to faith in Jesus as the Messiah, as the one who can save them from their sins and restore them to relationship with God, God sends his spirit, the Holy Spirit, who comes to live in them and indwells them, empowers them for the purpose for which humanity was created in the first place, to fill the earth with God's presence. And now, each one of them, each one of us, all of us as a whole, we are, the church is where God has come to live with his people. You are where heaven and earth come together, which is terrifying. It's terrifying because it means that people who don't know who Jesus is, they don't know who God is, the only experience of the presence of God they may have is their experience of you. It makes me want to go back to bed because <laughs> then at least I can't screw it up, right? 
But what's happening in this, this passage is we're finding out it is not up to us to make it happen. The Holy Spirit came on them suddenly when they weren't expecting it. Because it's not us, it's not me that people are encountering when they're encountering God. They're encountering the Holy Spirit, the power of God in me. You and I, we don't have to do anything except be available. Be available for the Holy Spirit to use us to introduce others to the presence of God in us. But it's not all going to look like speaking in other languages. The mode with which the Holy Spirit empowers and, and uh, you know, fills each of us is going to be a little bit different. We know that even from this passage. There's 120 people, all told. And it says all of them were filled with the Spirit and began speaking in other languages. But only as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's hugely important. As the Spirit, the way the verbs are kind of working there, it's like as long as the Spirit empowered them. Being filled by the Spirit and then this specific empowerment are not the same thing, though they happened at the same time. This is a specific skill for a specific task. It's not a permanent gift. And even though 120 are filled with the Spirit and begin speaking in other languages, how many get up to preach to the whole crowd? One. One, because when the Holy Spirit fills you and fills me and empowers you and empowers me for a purpose, he's not going to empower me to fulfill Peter's purpose. And he's not going to empower you to fulfill the purpose of someone sitting over here. And he's not going to empower you to fulfill the purpose for which he is empowering your spouse or your kids or your leaders. The Holy Spirit empowers each of us with specific skill, specific power for a specific purpose. So your Holy Spirit empowerment may just be the, I shouldn't say just because it's huge. It may be the courageous kindness that you show where you work or with your kids. Because your purpose is to proclaim the kingdom of God in your workplace or in your family. Or your empowerment from the Spirit may be the, uh, the, the way you're able to just kind of make sense of the world in wisdom to lead and navigate and guide others. Your specific empowerment may be the, to be self-controlled in the midst of a culture that's given to indulgence and decadence. Because that's how you proclaim the kingdom of God. Or your specific empowering from the Spirit may simply be working quietly at home while living lives characterized by love and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. In other words, I don't think we're going to be given specific empowerment to fulfill the purpose for which Peter is empowered, but the purpose for which God has for us. Because the presence of the Holy Spirit in me, in you, In us as a whole, the presence of the Holy Spirit is the power of God to fulfill his purpose through us. To be some small part of declaring the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. At 91st in college, in our little part of the world, 
we as a people are where heaven and earth come together and where God, people can experience the presence of God. But that doesn't mean it's up to us. So don't despair or give up or burn out. Don't choose any of those three doors. Just be available for the Holy Spirit to use you in his power to make his presence known. That's what we're here for. So let's pray. Father, fill us anew. Then in your presence and in the fullness of joy of your presence, we may be empowered for the purpose you have for us. And may we proclaim the coming of your son until he comes again. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.